Hi, Dr. Wright. I'm going live. Hi. I'm sorry. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent. I stands for using your intuition. N stands for networking. And K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Welcome, everyone. So glad that you're here with us today, which is February 10th, 2021. We've got a fantastic guest today, Dr. Wright, and she's going to be talking about her forthcoming book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. Welcome, Dr. Wright. Thank you, Denise. I'm delighted to be a guest. Really excited to have you here today. This is such an important topic. It really is. Why don't you give our listeners a little background on you? So I'm a practicing gynecologic oncologist, which is a mouthful in itself. Basically, uh, what that means is I'm a gynecologist that specializes in the care of women's cancer um, and complex benign gynecologic surgery. So the types of cancer that I treat are women's female reproductive cancers, so ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, fallopian tube cancer, cervix cancer, vulvar, and vaginal cancers. Um, And part of my job isn't just treating those cancers, but also doing the evaluation um, of people referred with symptoms and screening uh, for people at high risk for cancer. Well, you're a hero. Well, I'm on call tonight from the hospital, but I'm really glad to be on the phone with you on call. And someone's covering, so don't worry. I won't be called away. Um, But I was really motivated to write this book really based on uh, personal experience in my family with, with cancer, which I'm sure we're, I'm sure we'll get to, but it really okay. turned the tables and allowed me to see things in, in a little bit of a different way. Of, co- of course, no doubt. Cause that was going to be one of my questions is, you know, why did you choose this particular specialty? So, um, I love being a surgeon. It's, uh, always fascinated me even since childhood how you know you grow up and there's so many changes in your body you go through puberty you become a young woman you have your children and and you know just the life stages and the impact of what you can do on a sort of daily basis and how that over time with consistency can actually impact your health and and change your body especially if you're uh, interested in physical fitness in sports um, in nutrition, you can kind of do little tweaks here and there, and, and you can see an, a, a difference in your own 
life and body as a result of that. And and what, have, what would those tweaks be? So just by having good, healthy lifestyle habits, I grew up in Canada, in Prince Edward Island. In the mornings, I used to get up to ice skate and do figure skating before I went to school. Um, so I'd skate from 6 to 8, and then I'd go to school. And I think that set me up to be on time for the OR, which always starts at 7 a.m. <laughs> but having uh, physical activity in our lives is so important because it changes our physiology. And then what we ah. eat for nutrition is also so important. And more and more research is starting to show the benefits of, of this. It's sometimes a hard sell to to sell lifestyle interventions because our habits need to be formed, and it's not something you can do just once. A habit is something that sure. has to be almost an unconscious behavior. But over time, those habits over a lifetime really add up to have a huge impact on your health. They really do. Um and you're so right about it having to be a habit. Right. I, you know, people sometimes put a lot of confidence uh, in the healthcare system and in our doctors, and it's really important to have trust in the healthcare system and a good working relationship with your doctor and your healthcare team. But if you think of it, what you do every day at home is going to have so much more impact than the 30-minute visit that you might have once a year for an annual exam with your doctor. So people really, have to, yeah, people really have to understand the power of their choice, which is part of the title of my book or subtitle, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. So you have to be informed and you have to understand that the little things you do every day can add up over a lifetime and it's hard when we're young where we have all this energy and our bodies are forgiving, but that doesn't continue through our lifespan. It catches up with us if we don't take care of ourselves. That's so true. Well, you know, you have, you have genetics that play a part as well. Yes, genetics definitely do play a part, um, but genetics aren't the whole story. Um, there's this whole science of epigenetics where some people will have, a, a, for example, a predisposition to cancer, yet not ever develop cancer based on genetic testing. And we don't really understand the epigenetics or the factors that influence what cancers actually get expressed. Um, but the genetic part of it is important to understand, especially with respect to some of the cancers that we treat in gynecology. I think ovarian cancer is probably best known for having a genetic component, and now it's up to 15 to 20% of cases, which is the reason the national guidelines are in place that any woman with a diagnosis, like a personal diagnosis of ovarian cancer, should have genetic testing um, because there's things that we can do differently if we know that you're predisposed to develop cancer. And again, it's just stratifying risk and knowing what you can do to modify your risk. It doesn't mean that you're absolutely going to develop cancer. It just means there's an increased risk. And then we always have to weigh risks and benefits as far as any intervention we decide to take. I would um, 
think that once that genetic testing is done on ovarian cancer, that the treatment protocol may be a little different or not? It, yes. It, it, um, in, well, let's go back a step because okay. if you have a gene mutation, then there are risk-reducing surgeries that you can undergo to really dramatically decrease your risk of ever developing cancer. So best known, obviously, is the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations with Angelina yes. Jolie, who had, um, you know, was a public, public figure who underwent uh, risk-reducing mastectomy with removal of tubes and ovaries because she carried a BRCA gene mutation. And actually, there was an Angelina effect where once she went public, a lot of people did show up and get genetic testing based on family history of having a relative with cancer. And rates of um, detecting these abnormal genes increased in the population. And so if we can stratify your risk, then it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to choose risk-reducing surgeries, but there are other things that are really important that women don't always consider. So, for example, with ovarian cancer, for We've, we've, known, we've known that women with a gene mutation, a lot of those cancers aren't actually starting in the ovary. They start in the distal end of the fallopian tube. And they're so oh. tiny, they spill cancer cells out of the end of the tube, which is attached to the ovary. The cells land uh-huh. on the ovary and grow on the ovary and create a mass in the ovary. And then we call it ovarian cancer, but it actually started in the fallopian tube. Oh, and so we had always known that if someone had a tubal ligation, their risk was decreased somewhat. But now that we know that the end of the fallopian tube is where some of these cancers start, when women are deciding, for example, for family planning and they've finished having uh-huh. children, you can uh-huh. have the fallopian tube removed rather than tied. So people talk about getting their tubes tied. For the last probably five years, we don't tie tubes anymore. We actually remove them. And that should impact. Oh. We, we don't see it yet, but that should impact in the next, because it takes a while for women to age to the point where we see ovarian and fallopian tubes cancer expressed. You know, usually it's diagnosed after menopause. Uh-huh. So we, we don't necessarily see the impact of that, but models show modeling suggests that the rate of ovarian and fallopian tube cancer should decrease down the road because of this new intervention. So for birth control, people can have their tubes removed rather than tied. And if you have to have, I just want to say one of the ovaries. That's a really good question. Tube out. How does that affect them? So people sometimes, um, when we started to do, and we call it, even not just for family planning, but now we call it this funny word, opportunistic tubal ligation or or opportunistic (laughs) removal of the tube. So say you have to have surgery for some other benign GYN indication, we could Uh remove the tubes then at that point just as a risk-reducing procedure in someone that's already undergoing surgery for another reason, right? Okay. So there was reluctance initially because people thought, well, if we remove the fallopian tube, will that affect the ovary? Because every, you know, we know that if the ovary 
if the ovary were to be removed and menopause happened, then there's adverse health outcomes from that, the side effects of an early menopause. But the study shows that removing the fallopian tubes alone doesn't increase the risk of someone having menopause. The blood supply to the ovary remains intact, and so there's not a higher rate of premature menopause from having Uh just the tubes removed. Interesting. I love learning new things. Now, as a surgeon, do you do a lot of robotic surgery at this at this time? So I'm I'm not sure if your listeners would know the know uh, what the technology is, what it means when we say robotic surgery. So to go back okay. a, a little bit, um, the medical sure. terms. So laparotomy just means an incision. Anything ending in otomy is an open incision. So laparotomy, okay. appendectomy is to remove it. But So a laparotomy is historically how we did surgeries. And the first laparoscopic hysterectomy was performed in the late 1980s. And when we went to laparoscopic surgery, that meant the incisions were, were tiny like keyholes. And our instruments would enter through these little keyholes. And the Instruments would allow us to do the same surgery without a large incision and not putting our hands okay. inside the patient. Then okay. uh, robotics came, came around, and it's different in the instruments that we use, but the concept of the keyhole incisions is the same. The reason it's different is that rather than operating in two dimensions, which is like watching a television screen, robotics... Uh-huh. The robotic equipment allows us to operate in 3D, which is what we live our lives in. So we have depth perception, which you don't have if you watch a television screen. And that's accomplished by having one camera feed each eye. And so then we have binocular vision, which gives us 3D perception. So that's important because if you're trying to, to do fine surgery in space, um, uh-huh. To have the, the depth perception makes your movements a little more accurate for very fine technical surgery. And then the other difference for uh, robotics is that the instruments we use are designed the same as the human wrist. So it has three degrees of motion, sorry, seven degrees of motion, rather than just uh-huh. something being able to rotate along its axis or go open and close. So it allows us to operate in a really tight space so that we don't have to make such... So we're not twirling our bodies around the instrument. The wrist is moving inside Uh is the difference. So it allows us to do a little more complex surgery, very very much like having an open incision by using these small operating keyhole incisions, but having instruments inside the patient that accomplishes the same thing that we could do if the patient had a very large open incision. Well, I would think in the types of surgeries you do, that just has to be a marvelous interaction between you and the, the instruments and the, the success of the surgery. Yeah, you know, for for women's surgery for hysterectomy, especially, um, you know, this one of the challenges with robotic surgery now is like, how do you remove specimens from the patient and keep those small incisions? And in women. 
you know, the vagina where the cervix is uh-huh. attached is where we are able to remove sometimes very large specimens and, and sure. still avoid that large abdominal in, in incision. Um, so that's that's important, obviously, for a patient's recovery um, because the way our nerve supply is, most of the pain from surgery is from the trauma we cause on the abdominal wall, not so much from our internal organs. So it's really enabled patients to be discharged the same day um, as opposed to a three- to four-day hospital stay. And often some of them are just taking Tylenol, Motrin, and a narcotic only on a PR, like a PRN or as-needed basis. So it's a, big, it's a big improvement compared to even a few years ago. I'll say. Yeah, it's also oh. it's great because for cancer patients, they don't get the complications of a wound infection or a hernia as much. Um, the rates of complication are lower. So it uh-huh. allows them, if they need adjuvant therapy for cancer, to proceed with that um, without delay. Huh. It's really hard to keep up on all this technology, isn't it? It's just moving yeah, things, so quickly. Things change so quickly. And I think, you know, in the book that I wrote, It's Time You Knew, there's a couple of, like I, the format, I try to do learning points kind of at the end of the chapters. And when women are having hysterectomies, it's important to make sure that um, their surgeon has considered minimally invasive surgery. It doesn't necessarily have to be with robotics. It could be laparoscopic or robotic. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But sometimes women aren't given the choice and they still end up having an abdominal incision for a procedure that could have been done laparoscopically. So it's important that women ask. Maybe there's a reason it's not appropriate to be done that way, but people should take time to research that and understand that what, what that is because the complication rate is less and... Really, we want we want women to recover as fast as they can and get back to their lives and to their families and not be in the hospital or have more pain than is necessary because the doctor didn't offer a minimally invasive approach when it was something that could have been done that way. Well, and your book is is vital for these women because if in fact they're diagnosed with cancer, usually treatment protocols are are rushed as a result, understandably. So to have your book, rather than than not having the time to research, is so valuable because you're going to kind of give them a little roadmap. I think you know what you said, where things are so rushed. Um, usually, people have time. I think it's the fear that rushes people, and yes, I think it's really important for people to be present, to live in the present. And just because someone uh-huh. told them they had cancer today, they shouldn't be overly reactive to that, and they have to understand that how they feel right now in that moment um, and the fear of the cancer diagnosis 
that's going to lessen over time. And it's something that can have a huge impact based on how things are explained. And uh-huh. cancer is such a broad term. It's really important. This may be a bad analogy, but like if you're going shopping for groceries, there's so many different things in the grocery store, right? And so um, uh-huh. for cancer, there's just so many different types of cancer, and all of them have sort of a different prognosis and outcome. And more and more for women, um, especially if, if women are young women and haven't had their families yet, there's always time to ask the question about uh, fertility-sparing surgery. Because sometimes Uh women just become overcome by fear and anxiety, and they just say, yes, I want this, quotes, out of me (laughs) now. Yes, yeah, right (laughs) right right now. Uh Uh Right? And so they need to just step back and take a deep breath and know that just because that moment in time someone told them they had cancer, it doesn't change things immediately. Yes, they need to be educated. They need to make good choices. They need to do their research. But most of the time, things will turn out fine because most of the, you know, most of the women's cancers, if if diagnosed early, have pretty good outcomes. Um, most are curable. the The toughest one is ovarian cancer, of course. But um, uh-huh. always, you know, women have time, and and there's time for a second opinion. It's rare that there's not time. Sometimes there are emergencies. In my book, there's a couple of chapters that show where things can kind of go badly quickly. Um, okay. And it's important to let your family know and have some plans in place when you're diagnosed with cancer. But most of the time, there's uh, sufficient time to make a good plan and um, carefully think about your choices. Very well said, indeed. Let's talk about, um, let's get back into the prevention side of the cancer. Um, you talk about how there's one step that can prevent cancer that a lot of men and women, they just don't do it because they don't know about it. Right. So there's probably more than one step, but the one that I think a lot of people overlook is vaccinations. Um, Okay. So... HPV vaccination, um, you know, we've had an HPV vaccination for probably more than 10 10 years at this point, 10, 15 years, yet the majority of people have not been vaccinated. And HPV as a virus, um, there are more than 6 million HPV infections. Uh, per year in the United States. It's the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. and worldwide. You can have HPV infection and never develop cancer, but having an HPV infection puts you at increased risk of five different cancers that affect both men and women. A lot of the initial advertising around the HPV vaccine was targeted at women and cervical cancer. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think that did a little bit of disservice. More recently, the FDA just approved the HPV vaccine for men as well because the most common HPV-related cancer right now is head and neck and oral pharyngeal cancer, and it affects men five times more than women. 
Um, so HPV infections can be asymptomatic. Um, the HPV vaccine uh, prevents uh, cancer and also precancer. For cervix cancer, most women I, in your audience, I'm sure, have heard of a pap test. Some may not sure. have, right? Oh, no, they um, yeah. Yeah, so a pap, a pap test is a screening test to prevent cervix cancer. Uh, now, depending on your age, and there's recent guidelines to do away with the pap test and just have an HPV test because almost all cervix cancer relates to the presence of HPV. And if you don't have HPV, your risk is dramatically lower. So. Uh-huh. The PAP test is taking a little bit of a hit. The PAP test was really successful in decreasing the rate of cervix cancer, but it was successful because it was done every single year. And guidelines now are for, depending on your age, if we um, start at age 30, for example, because before that, HPV infections are so common, but most people will clear them. And the people really at risk for cancer are are people who have persistent HPV infection over time. And so after age 30, if you're persistently HPV positive, that really stratifies your risk. And again, it's about defining risk and based on risk, what your follow-up should be. And so if you have HPV or an abnormal pap test, then that requires follow-up. And by treating where the abnormal cells are, which you determine by follow-up, you can treat the pre-cancer and never develop cancer. But it requires you to show up for an abnormal... Well, first, it requires you to show up to get your screening test done. And then it requires you to follow up any abnormal screening test results. And then it requires you to go back and get checked, right? So there are steps that need to be taken that we don't all do, but that if we did, by getting vaccinated, by having screening, and by making sure we follow up, it's really unlikely you're going to develop a gynecologic HPV infection. Huh. That's good news, isn't it? It is good news. There's modeling, actually, that Australia could eliminate cervix cancer from the continent just because they're doing universal HPV vaccination, boys and girls, and um, treating, you know, having uh, screening with uh, HPV. Um, So there's certainly promise. You know, the sad thing in the United States is that despite all that we know, very few people have received HPV vaccination to date because it's not administered as a public health measure. It's not in the schools. It's up to parents making appointments with their okay. pediatricians, right? And then, okay. and then if you haven't been vaccinated by your parents when you were a child, you can still do catch-up. But after age 16, you need uh, three doses instead of two. And you can uh, be vaccinated up to age 26. And more recently, that guideline uh, got increased because of the now information showing that oral pharyngeal cancer rates are high up to age 46. But um, it needs to be discussed with your your doctor to see if it's appropriate to get vaccinated after age 26. Again, very good information. 
what do, what do you think about women and their preferences for, for men or women as OBGYNs? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's been a pretty dramatic shift in trainees in OBGYN where, you know, over time I think women have outnumbered men now graduating from OBGYN programs. Oh. I don't, I don't think, though, it's the gender of the doctor that's important. I think it's the trust and ability to uh-huh. communicate. Sure. Um, those, you know, trust is so important and being comfortable with your physician so that you can ask the maybe embarrassing or difficult questions. Uh-huh. Um, so I would say gender really isn't what's what's important. I think we all have biases um, in relationships that are subconscious even, right? And so some sure. women obviously do prefer a female provider um, or a male provider, and that's an individual preference perhaps or bias. But uh, I, ideally, it's the, the physician you should see is someone that makes you uh, comfortable, that you can trust, that has a good reputation. Uh, I agree. I completely agree. Was well, there anything else you'd like to add to our interview today? Um, your your upcoming book will be released when? So it's in pre-launch now. So we're okay. having a special. You can get the ebook for ninety nine cents. It's a perfect Valentine's present. <laughs> but the book <laughs> itself um, doesn't come out until February eighteenth. Oh, that's. Oh heck, that's just around the corner. It's like next week. That's around the corner, yeah. yeah, yeah. And where can people get your book? Um, on Amazon um, is probably the biggest distributor. Um, okay. And my website has a link to it too. So bolinawrightmd.com. You can see the links to it there as well. Okay, so spell your website for everybody so they can write it down. Sure. It's V like Victoria, A-L-E-N-A, right, W-R-I-G-H-T, M-D for medical doctor, dot com. Beautiful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think we've covered most things. The one thing that I didn't, mention that I think is really important is we know that women aren't coming to the hospital for evaluation of symptoms. There's a study actually from Uh, California, from Kaiser, uh, that looked uh, at the rate at which uterine cancer is being diagnosed. And it looked at a three-month interval, March, April, May of 2020, compared to those same three months in 2019, and the number Uh-oh. of uterine cancers diagnosed was decreased by a third. So obviously, oh Kaiser is uh, had you know had availability and people could come in, um, but people just weren't coming in. So I, I wanted your listeners to know that during the COVID pandemic, some elective surgeries had to be canceled, obviously, but yes. you can 
come and see your doctor, and these cancers can be diagnosed by simple office procedures, um, and it's safe. You know, of all the places to go in a pandemic, people sometimes are afraid perhaps to go to the hospital, but we've been practicing infectious disease protocols for years. We're so well-trained. Everything is cleaned, washed. Yes, there's um, patients right. with COVID, but um, we're we're very versed at, at taking care of people who have different in, um, infections. And I just want your listeners to know that they shouldn't delay medical care because of a fear of COVID. Um, right. it, it's important for people to come and have their symptoms worked up. I think that's okay. um, one of the, the highlights in the, the book, too, is that some, some women, it can take two years to get a diagnosis of some of these GYN pathologies for a variety of reasons. And part of it's denial or, or delay, but if you have symptoms that are worrisome or bothering you, you should speak with your family doctor and make the appropriate follow-up. I agree, very much so. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy career. <laughs> and and I, I really uh, wish you much success with your book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer by Dr. Valina Wright. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Denise. It's my pleasure to speak with you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. That ends our episode for today. Please join us again next Wednesday because you just know we're going to have another great informative guest. Until then, everyone, please be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer Now What? Com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?